0: Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones.
1: And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure.
0: And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Welcome to episode four, and today we're talking about a short story entitled Danger, being the log of Captain Sirius. It's Conan Doyle's prophetic tale of submarine warfare, published in July 1914, as a warning to, and indeed chastisement of, the politicians of the day now we chose this because conan doyle was more than a writer he was an influential public figure and he used his fame to further many agendas throughout his life indeed he saw it almost as the duty of a professional writer to be what we might call today an influencer and danger shines a light on this aspect of his character so um let's begin with a quick synopsis of what happens within danger
1: there has been an incident in one of the colonies which has involved the deaths of two missionaries and Great Britain and the small northern European state of Norland have been drawn into war with one another. The King and Ministers of Norland have little hope of victory, but Captain John Sirius, who commands the nation's fleet of eight submarines, is convinced he can win the war by a form of unrestricted submarine warfare against the merchant shipping which supplies much of Britain's food. The idea seems ludicrous, but as Sirius's submarines begin their campaign in earnest and the losses mount it begins to appear that Norland may be able to bring the military and imperial colossus that is Britain to its knees.
0: So that's a taste for what happens in danger. And uh, let's start by just giving you a bit of background on when the story was published. It was uh, first published in the Strand Magazine in July 1914 and in Colliers in the USA in the following month and it came out right in the middle of what the historians call the July Crisis, that period of time uh, between the 28th of June 1914 when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo and 28th of July when um, the First World War broke out uh, when Austria declared war on Serbia. So Danger comes out right on the eve of uh, the First World War. It was accompanied in the Strand magazine by a short piece entitled What Naval Experts Think. And that's a series of commentaries on the story by a number of notable naval figures of the day, with the occasional and somewhat defensive, it should be said, interjection from Conan Doyle in the form of, of annotations. It became the title story of a Conan Doyle anthology, Danger and Other Stories, published by John Murray in 1918. We might come on to later the fact that there is an interesting preface to the 1918 edition where he looks back on Danger and talks about uh, some of the points he was making in that and whether they were picked up by the politicians of the day or had been left to languish. Danger is, as Daniel Stashower described in his uh, biography of Conan Doyle, perhaps the most remarkable piece of propaganda Conan Doyle ever wrote – Though, as uh, Staschauer says, um, it ran aground on the shoals of political diatribe. Conan Doyle was generally regarded as a bit of a Germanophile in the early part of the 20th century. But his views seemed to have shifted and hardened around uh, 1912 when a volume came out from General Friedrich von Bernardi called Germany and the Next War.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a book that was a, a battle cry by um, General von Bernardi for Germany to be prepared for the war, which he was absolutely convinced was coming, and for Germany to, to take advantage of this, to grab land, and uh, to really create a greater Germany. Mm. Um, this, ha- unsurprisingly, uh, created um, tremors of anxiety throughout the rest of Europe, and it was it was translated and was was widely read uh, in Britain and, and was, was was seen as a threat to Britain. Conan Doyle read this book himself uh, and was obviously very concerned with it. Uh, and he actually wrote an article for the Fortnightly Review, which was published in February 1913, uh, which he called "Great Britain in the Next War" mm. in direct response to von Bernardi's title. Uh, two of his main concerns were the disruption that the submarine fleet could cause to the um, the supply chain of, of food in particular to Britain, and also that it was a change. It could mark a change in the nature of warfare. The gentleman's code book be, would be ripped up mm. uh, and and warfare itself become a far more barbarous business than it already was. Uh, Rejoined it to the submarine threat was, was the idea that we should build one or two channel tunnels. Uh, to allow food to be supplied directly by rail uh, from the continent rather than having to resort to the, the sea route only.
0: And the Channel Tunnel idea was not a new idea. It had been around since the time of Napoleon as a yeah, proposition.
1: Napoleon, it was, it was thought of an, an idea of, of getting the Grand Armée across mm. to invade uh, Britain. The main period of threat then was, was, was 1805. So it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a new idea, but um, it's the, the, the engineering problems... Uh, were were one of the main concerns.
0: Yes, and it's one of the quirks of fate that there was going to be a debate in the House of Commons on a potential Channel Tunnel which was postponed because of the outbreak of the First World War. So it was um, swept away and it wouldn't be until the 1980s that the Channel Tunnel would become a serious proposition and ultimately be fulfilled. Mm. And there's absolutely no doubt that Conan Doyle felt the Bernardi book was a very real threat... He wrote in his own uh, Great Britain and the Next War that we should be mad if we did not take very serious notice of the warning. And there's another incident that is often cited as being relevant to the writing of Danger, which is the Prince Henry Tour that took place in 1911.
1: Yes, the uh, the Prince Henry Tour was um, essentially a, a motor rally, um, and the, the, the drivers involved... Uh, were members of the Imperial Automobile Club of Berlin and the Royal Automobile Club of London. Uh, the drivers tended to be civilians, but they they each had a military observer or umpire in their car of the uh, of the other nation. So, therefore, a British driver would have a German officer mm. in their car. Conan Doyle participated in this in his French-built 16-horsepower Lorraine-Dietrich car, uh, <laughs> and his particular observer or umpire was Count Karma, the Rittmeister of the Breslau Cuirassiers. Uh, the whole uh, idea behind this tour, uh, which was named after the Kaiser's brother, who was also Admiral of the German fleet, Prince Henry, or Prince Heinrich, um, was to foster goodwill between the two nations. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the the first half of the tour uh, saw them motoring around Germany, and then the second half of the tour motoring around uh, Britain. Um, a g- number of the British officers involved Uh, as observers uh, in this rally, were highly sceptical of the real motives behind uh, this this apparent goodwill gesture, uh, believing that the the German officers involved wanted to moat around Great Britain simply to take observations, um, take note of facilities of interest, and map out the country ready for a possible invasion.
0: Mm a lot of people have commented saying that the tour was a big turning point in Conan Doyle's attitude towards Germany although actually in Life in Letters there is a letter that indicates that he doesn't really see the German threat materialising in the course of this somewhat bad tempered car rally and in fact he comments more on the attitude of the British drivers at that point in time but there's another figure who is around in the rally who has his own take on Conan Doyle's view and that's um, Swinton.
1: Yes, uh, he, 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 this was the future Major General Ernest Swinton, who would go on to become one of the co-inventors of the uh, the tank in 1916. He was along as one of the, the British umpires and was one of the, the, the sceptical officers, and he perceived Conan Doyle's view uh, to be rather naive. Um, mm. And he says um, in his autobiography, though it seemed to many of us British that the whole tour was a piece of bogus appeasement on the part of the Kaiser's government... Quite a number believed in the genuineness of the gesture. Curiously enough, among these was the late Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who was a member of the British party. He and I were discussing this matter on the morning of the ninth of July on the deck of the Norddeutsche liner, Grosskirforst, as we steamed up Spithead, when the news of the arrival of the panther at Agadir came aboard. Conan Doyle turned to me. Yes, it does look fishy, I admit, was his reply to my unstated query. But personally, I don't think you are right, well, in 1914, he learned
0: the truth. So there's implication there that Swinton thought Conan Doyle was a little bit naive.
1: Uh, yes, and, and he notes in, in one of his other books, um, Eyewitness, which was published in 1932, uh, in a footnote um, that in 1912, after the appearance of General Friedrich von Bernhardi's sinister and illuminative book, Germany in the Next War, Conan Doyle's views changed
0: considerably. Mm. And it's intriguing that uh, Swinton picks up on the Panther incident.
1: yes, the uh, the incident referred to was um, the arrival of the German gunboat, Panther, in Agadir in Morocco, which precipitated uh, a crisis between the German and French governments, mm. uh, which resulted in the end uh, in an agreement that the French would have full interest in Morocco. Uh, and Germany was uh, granted rights in certain parts of the French Congo. It was believed at the time that it would be a colonial incident of some kind that would would kick off a European war. This was the age of the uh, the scramble for Africa. And it's it's uh, it, it is quite fascinating that Doyle picks up on this and the war that occurs in danger is actually kicked off by uh, the killing of two missionaries in in an unnamed colony.
0: Yeah. Conan Doyle actually wrote the story around May 1914, shortly before he set off to the USA for a tour of um, North America. And uh, he actually set sail for that tour on the Olympic, which is a, a liner that appears within the story, Danger, as we shall see. Um, So it was written in May, published in July, but in between those two dates, in June 1914, another commentator, Admiral Percy Scott, wrote a letter to the Times uh, that essentially argued many of the same points that uh, Conan Doyle makes in Danger about uh, Britain's lack of preparedness for uh, submarine warfare. So Danger comes out in July 1914, as we've said, but it's almost the culmination of several attempts to get across Conan Doyle's concern about um, British military and particularly naval preparedness for the war that was to come. Um, He'd attempted a very direct approach there in uh, Great Britain in the next war in response to the Bernardi article, but he also attempted this in, in fiction as well, and I think there are probably three works that are worth Referencing at this point in time. The first is The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans, a Sherlock Holmes story uh, that came out in the Strand in December 1908, which is obviously about the uh, loss of the plans for a um, impressive new British submarine. Uh, Mycroft Holmes says naval warfare becomes impossible within the radius of a Bruce Partington's operation. So, in that story, Conan Doyle expresses an interest in the potential of the submarine and how it can have an, a, a material impact on warfare. He's also making a general point about um, the laxness of uh, British uh, measures to uh, protect their own interests. And this is something that he also alluded to in the Naval Treaty in 1893, where a treaty is uh, stolen from under the nose of a British official. And Sherlock Holmes is brought in to try to identify uh, the culprit and to uh, return the treaty. The second piece is The Last Galley, which is a short story that came out in the London magazine magazine in November 1910 and then appeared in a collection called Tales of Long Ago. And the last galley is essentially the British naval question in parable. The story is about um, the last galley of Carthage returning home following defeat at the hands of the Romans. And uh, on the deck, the captain and the politician recount how the hubris of their own people has led to their destruction. Uh, They take solace in a interesting prophecy that uh, someday Rome too will fall. and indeed that a small tin island to the west, uh, better known as uh, the British Isles, will one day take up Carthage's trident as queen of the waters. And the story ends with the Carthaginian galley taking two Roman galleys with it to the depths, uh, leaving Carthage to be razed to the ground. It's a really terrific short story, um, and probably deserving of a a podcast in and of itself. But essentially in the last galley, Conan Doyle is making many of the points he makes in danger about... um, Politicians being overly concerned with their own political battles and less with the um, imminent danger facing their country. And then the third attempt is danger, which is in many ways the least subtle of the three. And, uh, and it's the one that has um, the least amount of story. I would suggest it,
1: it's 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 almost a, 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 a polemic essay in story form, mm. more, more than anything else. And the last galley, the uh, the it, it, part of the problem with the last galley is it, it's too subtle.
0: Yes, it is, <laughs> it is, and I think this is Conan Doyle realizing that he has mm. to be much more on the nose to get the message mm. across. Um, and it's it's
1: interesting as well with the Bruce Partington plans that Mycroft's comment about um, naval warfare becoming impossible in the vicinity of a Bruce Partington submarine is that that at this point Conan Doyle is still thinking about um, conventional naval warfare. Yes, he is. Uh, He's not even considering this idea of sinking merchantmen and and attacking the civilian population
0: using submarines. No. So let's come on to the story itself and being the log of Captain Sirius, let's start with Captain Sirius himself. Where do you think the name comes from, Paul? Well, the, the, the name is symbolic
1: and um, mm. taken from the, 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 the dog star, the, the brightest star. And um, Sirius is obviously meant to be the brightest star of the Norland Navy. Um, and it, it, it's, it's interesting as well in that you look at um, the, 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 the Latin origins of the name. Mm. Uh, and you can compare this to, to Captain Nemo. Uh, in yes. Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea which was certainly a book Doyle's very familiar with uh and Nemo Latin for for no one no man He's he's a, it's to mark that he's a citizen of 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 nowhere and a citizen of the world and Sirius's name is similarly used to um to show that he is the brightest spark of this particular navy
0: mm. um and Sirius is really the only character we get in danger um, he's there for a very specific purpose, which is to summon up the blood of the, the British because he's a pretty um, saber-rattling type. He's rather full of himself. Very much so. Mm. There are moments when he has pretensions of caring for individuals, um, talking about how he let people have enough time to get off the sinking boats. But um,
1: now he, he seems, at the end of the story, he seems to have no qualms whatsoever about the, uh, the more than 50,000 deaths amongst the civilian population of Britain. He, he seems more concerned uh, with ensuring that the, the crews of his, his submarines uh, get a good reward mm. for, for, the, for a job well done.
0: Mm. Uh, the political rhetoric is, is turned up to 11 on this one, really. I mean, he's, he's, there are some quite astonishing lines in there. Ah, oh, Johnny, Johnny Bull. I said as I looked at them, you are going to have your lesson and I am to be your master. I mean, this is not subtle stuff from, from Conan Doyle at all. Another thing that singles out danger is the realism of the story, and Conan Doyle is making quite specific references to submarines. He's drawing connections between the submarines in Sirius's fleet. He's he's enjoying himself with the mechanical
1: details, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, he loves all of that detail about Sirius's submarines, even to the point of giving their breadth and depth and uh, speed and horsepower. This is boys with toys to some extent. But he's also very conscious to set this sometime in the future. So when he is describing the submarines, he describes how four of them are of the old, quotes, the old F-class uh, equivalent of the British boats, but they were relatively new at the time of writing. So this is Conan Doyle setting it slightly in the future. And then he has um, four other ships. He claims are 25% advance upon the older boats, <laughs> which is Conan Doyle not going into the technical details <laughs> It's rather at vague. It's very, very vague at this point in time. And um, he actually names all of the submarines uh, after the Greek letters of the alphabet. Alpha, beta, gamma, theta, uh, delta, epsilon, iota and kappa. And anybody who's familiar with Greek alphabet but will know that there are a couple of letters there missing and they're in a different order. But there's another bit of realism in the story that's really very poignant, which is when Sirius's submarine sinks the line of the Olympic, which was a real ship. And uh, it was actually the ship that Conan Doyle sailed to America in, in May 1914 shortly after writing the story so presumably he had the Olympic in his, in his mind as being the ship that he was going to be conveyed on but uh, it mirrors directly what happened with the, the Lusitania in 1915. The sinking caused an international outcry and it was an incident that almost brought the USA into the war two years earlier And
1: interesting one of those aboard and lost aboard the Lusitania was Charles Froman yeah. who had uh, pushed the William Gillette Sherlock Holmes play Yes indeed it's also interesting to note that one of the other ships sunk uh, by, by Sirius and his fleet is the Orontes and mm-hmm. you can't help but wonder if this is the same ship that brought Dr. Watson back from India yeah indeed, Yeah, very good point
0: point. and for all the story is realistic in the technical details Conan Doyle deliberately keeps some distance between um, uh, the fiction and the reality in the description of the enemy nation um, so what do we know about Norland in the In the story, Paul,
1: we we know that it's a a, a, a small country, um, and the you know the name Norland, as suggested, is somewhere in northern Europe. It's it's essentially a sort of Ruritanian sort of Mm. country. It's a small principality. We know it has a king. Um, It's it's in some ways this is a traditional. Case of of you know the mouse that roared the the small country that can bring a big country to its knees, mm. um, and D- D- Doyle is making the point at the end of the story um, that that if a small country can do this just using a fleet of eight submarines, just imagine what a big country like Germany could do if they employed these tactics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now we said at the outset that this is a prophetic vision of submarine warfare, so we really need to think about how accurate danger was and the answer is it was uh, pretty darned accurate. Germany began the war by using U-boats against uh, British capital ships but that tactic wasn't terribly effective so they moved on to attacking merchant shipping in what became known as unrestricted submarine warfare and there were really two waves of, of submarine warfare. The first wave began around October 1914 and it really took the uh, the British off guard. The British response was to arm merchant vessels and essentially ask them to race towards U-boats, forcing them to sink where they'd be less less effective. Then, in May 1915, a German U-boat sank the uh, the Lusitania, a British ocean liner carrying munitions about 11 miles off the south coast of Ireland, and that ultimately led to the USA demanding cessation of unrestricted submarine warfare under threat of of joining joining the war. So there was then a, a pause until the second wave, which began in February 1917. And this time, the German tactic had the explicit aim of sinking 600,000 tons of British shipping each month. To put that into context, the British only had 20 million tons of merchant shipping uh, at the beginning of the the Great War. So it was a very specific campaign targeting food supplies and other supplies coming into Great Britain and it was highly effective. Within a month a quarter of all the shipping en route to Britain was sunk and the British supply of wheat had dropped to to six weeks but the resumption of submarine warfare in 1917 brought the USA into the war and over the course of the next 18 months the British and the Allies got much more savvy to uh, submarine warfare and they were able to respond so there are these two waves, and there's a sense in which danger accurately predicts perhaps the first wave of unrestricted submarine warfare, but maybe not so well the second wave.
1: Sirius has it rather rather too easy, mm. you feel in in the story, and in in some senses this detracts from the story because unlike the real U-boats, he is hunter without particularly being hunted. Mm. The, the the British response to Sirius's campaign is is rather flaccid. The 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 tactic is shown in there of, of ships zigzagging to avoid the, the the submarines, but there's no sense of of what actually happened uh, and the logical. Uh, defence against this is to, to form convoys of merchantmen with naval ships of the line and spotter planes all altogether used in coordination against the submarines. Yes. Uh, there, there is a mention of hydroplanes uh, mm. being used as spotters in the story uh, but there's, there's, there's no sense of their real real danger to the submarines uh, and, and certainly not that the submarines are going to be attacked in, in, in any real sense. The, the the one submarine that is sunk in the story, it's it's purely because they've been careless.
0: Yes, they get shot by an armed merchant mm. ship. Uh, I I think um, Conan Doyle does quite a good job of reflecting the the perils and dangers that face the submarine crews. Mm. There are is quite a lot of description about how they can make their munitions extend further mm. and how they share oil and other things to Mm. extend their range and reach and the problems of the Mm. Marconi um, communications, but ultimately there is no direct threat to Sirius's fleet from the British.
1: Unfortunately, there's no psychological element to the story. I mean, uh, that's not his intent, but it it does detract from this piece as a story. There's no sense of the claustrophobia aboard a submarine, for
0: instance. No, there isn't at all. Um, The other thing that Conan Doyle is unable to predict, of course, is development of technology. So there was improved wireless communications over the course of the war, but also the invention of the depth charge around 1916. So there are things that he couldn't quite foresee. And But one of the common criticisms of the story at the time, and we'll come on to that with what naval experts think, was the British retaliation is not covered.
1: And, and Sirius's approach towards attacking neutral ships is also rather too blasé. Uh, for instance, I was thinking in uh, he was sinking an American ship. He simply says this can be sorted out by the insurance companies. Yeah, he doesn't take into account that the Americans would would directly threaten Norland themselves.
0: Yes, and that's the uh, uh, and that obviously is what comes comes to pass. I mean, there's a there's an amazing quote from from Sirius at one point on this uh, point where he says, "What did I care?" about three-mile limits and international law. The view of my government was that England was blockaded, food contraband and vessels carrying it to be destroyed. The lawyers could argue about it afterwards. The prediction that is probably the most shocking is the the attack on the Lusitania.
1: It it is something that its original readership would no doubt say, this wouldn't happen. This Mm. just couldn't happen. Mm. And Mm. within less than two years... It has happened,
0: yes, that's right. Yeah, and um, the Olympic actually had a bit of a war service itself, it became um, a troop ship uh, and was nicknamed Old Reliable because it was uh, it was the one that was constantly ferrying soldiers backwards and forwards to the continent. Um, I mean, famously, it was one of three of the Olympic class liners, the other being the Britannic, which launched in 1915, and perhaps more famously, the Titanic in 1912. One of the nice things about Danger is that when it was printed in the Strand magazine, it was uh, accompanied by a short article called What Naval Experts Think, in which uh, 12 commentators, of whom seven were admirals, all responded to Conan Doyle's story. On the whole, most people agree with the central tenet that um, food security is a critically important issue. There's quite a lot of support, almost unanimous support, I would say, for the concept of building a national network of granaries and having enough supply. There's also quite a bit of support for the notion of a channel tunnel. But Conan Doyle doesn't get away with a complete clean sheet in the reviews. There are several people who regard it as being somewhat fanciful there's a wonderful comment from Admiral William Hannam Henderson, who says that uh, the sinking of the Olympic is not realistic because big ships do not sink quickly. But of course, the Lusitania went down in 18 minutes. But one of the interesting commentators there is uh, is Fred Jane, editor of Fighting Ships, still going today. As far as I'm aware. Yeah, and he made uh, precisely the point you were making earlier about breaking international law and the consequences that would be experienced by anybody who actually. Um, disregarded international law in in that respect. He makes
1: the comment, personally, were I a British officer concerned and Captain Sirius and his crew fell into my hands, I should have no hesitation whatever in hanging them all without trial. Pour encourager les autres. To save millions of Britishers from starvation, anything likely to achieve that end will be justifiable. And then Conan Doyle laconically answers to that, you have to catch them first.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And there's one particular comment that I like, which was from Admiral Charles Cooper, Penrose Fitzgerald, uh, himself an interesting character, who's very supportive of the Channel Tunnel idea and tariff reforms, but he argues that the enemy would be more gentlemanly in their conduct of war than uh, Conan Doyle presents. I do not myself think that any civilised nation will torpedo unarmed and defenceless merchant ships, writes Fitzgerald, uh, to which Conan Doyle responds, with all deference I think we must deal with what is possible, not with what we hope or think. Now that's pretty stinging. It sounds
1: it's, like a, a comment on an exam paper. <laughs> it
0: does really, doesn't it? Admiral Fritz Gerald is quite an interesting character in that he was one of the uh, individuals who organised the issuing of white feathers to men not in uniform in 1915, which quickly took off as a, a bit of a craze at the beginning of the First World War. Conan Doyle, I think, was probably quite stung by some of the commentaries here, and he makes a, a pointed reference in his uh, in his letters, to the fact that the seven admirals are all retired, and he said uh, it was as well they were retired, since they had no sense of the possibilities of the naval warfare of the future. Um, so he was absolutely incensed, I think, by uh, by quite a number of the commentaries, and some of his annotations are quite snarky
1: and and unfair in some ways, because uh, you know the experience of, of naval warfare up to this point had still been more or less a gentleman's game.
0: Yes, it had. Um, And unrestricted submarine warfare, as he describes in in Danger, is a a real game changer, isn't it? I mean, Mm. it's a very different beast. How the public reacted to Danger is not really known, because it came out right at the outbreak of the First World War. But we do know that Conan Doyle came in for criticism from some quarters. There's a really fascinating uh, letter that was sent to the Daily Mail on the 28th of October 1914 from an anonymous source calling themselves H.B. that really questions Conan Doyle's patriotism and motives and even implies that he's a German sympathiser. It begins, Sir A. Conan Doyle appears to have a very tender heart for, quotes, the enemy in our midst and so one is not surprised to find that he is a contributor to the funds of the Committee for the Assistance of Germans, Austrians and Hungarians in Distress. And the article goes on to cite the appearance of danger in print. Um, The the correspondent is actually referring to the New York printing of danger uh, in one of the periodicals in September. But basically has got the wrong end of the stick to some extent and believes that this was written by Conan Doyle after the outbreak of the First World War and that Conan Doyle is essentially giving the Germans um, ideas. And it elicited a response from Conan Doyle and from the editor of the Strand magazine.
1: Yes, Doyle was was politely forceful Mm. in in his answer, uh, saying, Sir, your anonymous correspondent H.B. would have been wise to make sure of his facts the story to which he alludes danger was written in the spring published in july and consisted of a warning of the growing power of the submarine with its special danger to great britain events have shown how far such a warning was justified Uh, and uh, Conan Doyle was then backed up by uh, Greenhouse Smith, the editor of the Strand magazine, uh, who wrote, Sir H.B., who in his letter which you have published charges Sir Arthur Conan Doyle with having written an unpatriotic story, has got his facts all wrong. The story in question first appeared in the July number of the Strand magazine a month before the outbreak of the war and was accompanied by a symposium of naval experts.
0: Mm. And uh, we just have to say thank you there to Alexis Barquan at the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopaedia, who was uh, really helpful in finding that HB letter for us. Now, there is a sting in the tail to the HB article in that the story started to circulate that Germany may indeed have taken inspiration from Conan Doyle's danger. An article printed in the London Times on February 18th, 1915, entitled Six Weeks with the Enemy, recounted a, uh, uh, a Times correspondent in Germany at the time of the announcement of the attack on merchant shipping. And in it, several, quotes, well-informed Germans pointed to Conan Doyle's story as the source of inspiration. One uh, individual is quoted as saying, his story, Danger, will tell you far better than I can what we intend to do. Um, Conan Doyle made an immediate response to the press in which he stated he was very pained at the accusation and that his intention was only to rouse um, the country to the potential danger he foresaw. Nevertheless, the story seems to have stuck and there is an article in the New York Times dated 3rd of May 1917 in which uh, tribute is paid in a Reichstag committee to Conan Doyle as the only correct prophet of the present condition in the European war. It's something that was almost certainly stirred up as propaganda to upset the British. It's
1: a bit of, bit of mischief, Mike. bit
0: of mischief, yeah, and I, I think it probably reflects quite strongly on the fact that Conan Doyle was a well-known, well-respected figure at this point in time, mm, and definitely. if they could put him down in any way, shape mm. or form, that was going to be uh, of help to the, uh, to the German war effort. Uh, but there's another connection back to Swinton here.
1: Yes, because uh, Swinton, uh, as as well as uh, being a, a serving military officer in the uh, Royal Engineers, uh, was also a, a writer of military-themed speculative fiction, and his stories appeared in, in Blackwoods magazine, Strand magazine, and Cornhill magazine. Mm. And one of the stories he wrote later in his career, called D2, or Across the Mahogany, uh, was originally withheld. He wrote it in 1922 uh, but it was not published until 1934 when it was quite clear that it would not put ideas into the minds of the general staffs of potential enemies. Uh, the story itself dealt with biological warfare and the, uh, the time he lifted the embargo on its publication was after the publication of a book called Der Wissenschaft by Professor Evald Barnes which brought the ideas into the public sphere but it shows the worries of, of, of fictional speculation on, on these sort of subjects.
0: Mm, mm. And while we're on the topic of speculative literature, Danger is a story that can be seen as part of a, a genre of uh, fiction known as invasion literature. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Paul?
1: Yes, it's a whole uh, school which, which seems to have um, really come into being... Um, with with the story uh, entitled "The Battle of Dorking" uh, by uh, another serving officer, George Tomkins Cheney, uh, which was serialized in Blackwood's Magazine in 1871, in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War. Um, and in it, he, he speculated about a, a, a German-speaking enemy invading England, and uh, how we must be ready for this, and uh, what what might happen. It seems to have set off a whole uh, subgenre of this sort of fiction, hmm. uh, much of which is is not great literature but interesting um, in its its um, cultural aspects the the next uh, major entry uh, in in the field uh, is 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 a book called The Great War in England in 1897 um, by a guy called William Lequeux. Mm-hmm. this was published in 1894 Lequeux was um, a hack journalist very very good at self publicity his his um, autobiography was entitled Things I Know About Celebrities I think it's things I know about celebrities, kings and crooks and how he was emphasising his own importance um, but he um, changes the enemy in this story and it's it's France and, and, and Russia. There's still this um, atmosphere of, of Russophobia very much in the air in the late 19th century uh, but the joint threat of France and, and Russia uh, lessened considerably in the Edwardian era uh, with the Entente Cordiale between Great Britain and France in 1904 and the Anglo-Russian Convention in 1907 mm. Germany then was really perceived as the main threat. One of the other very important books in this whole subgenre actually appeared before those treaties, and it was The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers, yeah. uh, which, in which a couple of um, yachting chaps spot preparations for a German invasion of the uh, of the East Coast. Uh, Le Cue re-enters the picture in 1906 with his book The Invasion of 1910, in which it, Germany is the enemy this time. And a further entry uh, is by the rather more sophisticated writer Sacky, um, mm. the pen name of uh, H. H. Munro, who was actually to be killed in the First World War himself. Yeah. Um, but He wrote a book uh, called When William Came, a story of London under the Hohenzollerns, which uh, depicts life in Britain after a German invasion.
0: Uh, when does um Buchan's 39 steps come out that's 19 1915 1915 yeah. but that was written before yes he he wrote
1: war. it uh, in a period of, of recuperation from illness mm. um, that, that that again th- we've got another we've got subgenre upon subgenre in that that's invasion literature it's also spy literature
0: yes and riddle of the sands is often regarded as being the first modern one of the first spy spy novels, real as well novels, isn't it?
1: yeah um and then you you've got another Sub-sub-genre, if you like, with with um, science fiction elements. Mm. H.G. Uh, Wells uh, was, was particularly busy in this. Uh, he wrote a, a novel in 1908 called The War in the Air, which predicts um, airship warfare when a fleet of German Zeppelins flies across and bombs New York. Mm. Uh, interestingly, Conan Doyle uh, hadn't really seen the potential for military use of airships, except as reconnaissance spotters. He, he didn't envisage the bombing of cities from the air.
0: No, it's one of those sort of military blind spots. A bit like he didn't didn't entertain the idea of submarine to submarine warfare.
1: Mm, which which it, it's just this kind of strange fixed idea that, that he had on, on certain things. I, I mean, it it does seem very odd with the airships idea because you know once you've got planes, the obvious thing seems to be drop bombs from them. Mm. <laughs> but, um, but but Wells also um, foresaw another military technology, uh, wrote a short story called The Land Ironclads in 1903, which foresaw the introduction of the armoured fighting machine and the tank.
0: And Wells was engaged in a legal battle over who was to be identified as the originator of the tank.
1: Yes, there are a number of people who were were eligible for that title. The the, the tank was ultimately created by committee, but... um, some people were obviously more important than others, and one of those in the lead uh, of these claims was again General Swinton. Mm. Um, and the legal dispute was between Wells and him. Wells claimed that the idea was his from the the Land Ironclads.
0: Mm. And I suppose you can also include H. G. Wells' War of the Worlds, 1898, as being an example of invasion literature, although it's slightly more towards the apocalyptic subgenre.
1: Yeah, and, and again, it it does fit into the um, the, the, the invasion school of literature, and it, it's interesting, writers uh, of that time, British writers at that time, seem to have delighted in, in trashing the southeast of England. <laughs> uh, the Martians, you know, tramp over the same territory that, that the Germans and the French and the Russians do yeah. in,
0: in, in various other stories. And clearly, invasion literature was a well-established phenomenon by around 1910, because uh P.G. Woodhouse, around that time, I think it was 1909, wrote a parody of the genre entitled The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, in which England is simultaneously invaded by nine different armies, including Switzerland and Germany, but the English elites are rather more concerned about uh, play at lords, and they uh, leave the country to be saved by a boy scout named Clarence, which is a great fun story, and, uh, but illustrative of the fact that it was clearly a, a phenomenon at the time, otherwise these sort of parodies don't come out of nowhere. So as we said at the beginning, Conan Doyle really saw it as uh, his duty as a writer to also be a, a public figure, and he used his fame and popularity to argue for a great many causes throughout his life, divorce law of reform, body armour for troops, uh, spiritualism, of course, most famously. He actually got his knighthood not for his uh, Sherlock Holmes stories or for any of his fiction, but uh, ostensibly for his uh, defence of British action in the Boer War, which uh, earned him a knighthood in uh, October 1902. But by this time, 1914, Conan Doyle is a very well-known, very well-respected figure, which is probably why the uh, the Reichstag were able to make good use of him in uh, propaganda efforts in, in 1917. And he was ludicrously active as a public figure. In preparation for this uh, podcast, I quickly looked at one newspaper in 1914 and... Conan Doyle appears in a whole range of listings. Uh, he, he's responding to allegations that he plagiarised um, a French novel for his uh, challenger story, The Poison Belt. He speaks as president of the divorce law reform union. He appears to argue against the shooting of birds. He takes place in an amateur billiards championship. He writes in favour of a reservist force. So he's an incredibly active figure, pushing a whole range of different things. So what do we know about what he actually did during the First World War, Paul? He wasn't actually, at the age of 55, he,
1: he wasn't actually entitled to, ta- to take a direct uh, military role in the war, but he he, he had a, a, a brain which was, was Firing off ideas all the time, mm. some of them very sensible, uh, like inflatable jackets, rubber rafts for sailors who had been uh, on, on wrecked ships. Mm. Um, the idea of body armour for troops, which, which actually did begin to emerge in the First World War, where, where you, you've got uh, elements of body armour for snipers, the mm. steel helmet, in some ways uh, some degree of, of, of medieval military kit comes back in a modern form yes. he's, he's in favour of this he was also uh, in, in favour of armoured vehicles which again it's so back to, um, to Swinton and the tank. Mm. Uh, and, and curiously, Lord Kitchener, who was the uh, Secretary of War until he died aboard the Hunter in 1916, just thought of tanks and armoured vehicles as, as, as toys yes. that wouldn't be of any use. Doyle, you know, he, he, he wasn't he, just full of cranky ideas. He, mm. he had some very, uh, very useful ideas. But he, he did have a character which wound up um, mm. some of the senior military uh, characters. He'd never actually served in the military himself in any professional sense. He'd served in the, uh, in the Boer War, but as a doctor rather mm. than, than, a, than a fighting soldier. So inevitably he came up against a, a wall of military intransigence with, with, with some of his ideas.
0: Yeah, and one example where he very obviously oversteps the mark is in his arguments in favour of a civilian reserve corps where he took it upon himself to actually organise his own dad's army, as it was were.
1: He of the, the Home Guard, definitely. Yeah. yeah,
0: and actually the War Office wrapped him on the knuckles and immediately outlawed all of these non-official, uh, but they put him on the committee mm. that then discussed uh, the establishment of an official reserve corps, and in fact, Conan Doyle's uh, unit became the first official unit of this reserve corps, the Crowborough Company of the 6th Royal Sussex Volunteer Regiment. So Conan Doyle did see that uh, suggestion come into force, he did uh, also briefly visit the front as an independent observer in uh, 1916 and it's, I think it's claimed that uh, somebody asked him what Sherlock Holmes was doing during the war and that was what prompted him to come back and write his last bow in uh, in 1917. But probably one of the most fascinating and least well recorded examples of Conan Doyle getting involved in the British war effort was... Um, his attendance at the war propaganda bureau meeting of the 2nd of September 1914 this was a secret meeting led by the liberal mp charles masterman to uh, enlist british authors in service of the uh, the british cause and it famously was attended by ford Maddox ford by hg wells gk chesterton thomas hardy galsworthy and uh, and conan doyle conan doyle wrote a piece entitled two arms with exclamation mark, like danger. That was actually written before the meeting and and published afterwards. But Conan Doyle appears as a signatory among those other esteemed authors in a letter to the press which appeared under the title British Authors and the War in newspapers towards the end of September 1914. The meeting remained a secret until, I think, the 1930s. Probably his greatest contribution for the uh, War Propaganda Bureau was indeed the publication of His Last bow in, in 1917.
1: Yes, in, um his, his Last bow does answer the question of what did Sherlock Holmes do in the First World War? And it, 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 again, coming back to the, um, the literature we discussed earlier, uh, Holmes's principal job at the start of the war was to break a German spy ring. Mm. Um, again, very, very 39 steps. Yes. Um, but he also use, breaks the spy ring um, using the disguise of an Irish Fenian. So in this story, Conan Doyle is is showing his patriotism in two ways. He's mm-hmm. he's showing Holmes infiltrating the uh, the the Irish nationalist groups um, and using that infiltration to break the, the German infiltration of of Great Britain. So there's this this double layer of Holmes's patriotism. Um, and perhaps you know, Doyle had felt stung by the criticism thrown at danger mm. um, and his his response is to write his last bow uh, which you couldn't get a more patriotic story uh, and it does end with, with one of the most famous quotes from the entire canon yeah. um, where after the defeat of von Bork the German spymaster Holmes turns to Watson and says there's an east wind coming all the same such a wind as never blew on England yet it will be cold and bitter watson and a good many of us may wither before its blast but it's god's own wind nonetheless and a cleaner better stronger land will lie in the sunshine when the storm has cleared
0: and that uh, is in really stark contrast to to danger where the mood is very much to scare and to intimidate british people into preparedness for the war that final section of last bow is very much about there is hope for the future
1: and the, the, the strength of that quote is, is shown in its repeat use in uh, one of the Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. features, The Voice of Terror, where mm. the same quote is used to reply to the Nazi
0: menace. Mm. So that brings us to the end of Danger. It's probably worth adding Conan Doyle's own view of Danger, looking back on it from the vantage point of uh, many years later. And he commented that he was glad to admit he'd underestimated the energy and the ingenuity of Britain's response so for all, he had painted a very bleak picture of Britain's chances against unrestricted submarine warfare. He was ultimately happy to be proven wrong in this instance. So, Paul, what are we looking at next time? Next time, we'll be
1: examining two uh, interrelated stories from the Round the Fire series, The Man with the Watches and The Lost Special.
0: Very good. So two stories to look forward to next time. If you've got any comments or questions about the podcast, please contact us on Twitter at Doings of Doyle. Or you can visit the website, doingsofdoyle.com, where you can get access to the show notes. Until then, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and please join us for the next one. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. And there's another incident that's often cited as the trigger for writing danger, which is Uh, The Prince Henry Tour, which took place in 1910. 11. Oh, bollocks.